Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy is April 21st, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. The more that you listen, the more things you will know. The more that you learn, the more places you'll go. Today on The Local, your quick six headlines, an update on Multnomah County's new COVID-19 infection screening website from Kate K. And our interview with Rima Gondur, candidate for Multnomah County Circuit Judge, fourth in our series of four judge interviews for that open circuit judge seat. Having that ability to understand different cultures, having the ability to look at the whole picture and not just one or two factors, I think that's what makes a good judge. And a reminder that it is X-Ray's fund drive and we are resolute. None of us can do all the things we usually do, and we can't fix all the things we wish we could fix, but we can do this. We can work to provide 168 hours of content to help maintain the rhythm of some lives, and we can keep bringing you the local. Please do become a member at xray.fm. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. First up, It's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith, and it's Tuesday, April 21st. Oregon has eliminated the non-unanimous jury system due to the United States Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled 6-3 on Monday that the U.S. Constitution requires unanimous jury verdicts to convict defendants in state criminal courts. That ruling overturns a previous Supreme Court ruling. Also ends Oregon's history of using non-unanimous juries to find people guilty of crimes other than murder. The opinion was about a Louisiana case, but Louisiana had already changed their law, so the state it impacts most is right here, from Cascadia to the state of Jefferson. Specifically, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled the 14th Amendment incorporates a person's Sixth Amendment right to jury unanimity. The ruling will affect defendants whose appeals are still working their way through the courts. For others, whose cases were resolved earlier, a new round of lawsuits will be required to determine if the decision would invalidate their convictions retroactively. Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum said, we're well prepared to address its significant consequences for Oregon's justice system. That said, it's not clear what those consequences are. A little background, in 1934, Oregon voters approved a constitutional amendment creating Oregon's non-unanimous jury system. Legal scholars argued that Oregon's law at the time aimed to silence immigrants and religious minorities in the state. Your daily dose of data... Oregon state and local health officials reported 47 new coronavirus diagnoses Monday afternoon. That brings Oregon's confirmed cases to just under 2,000, 1,956, and one new coronavirus-related death on Monday, bringing the total number to 75. Governor Brown announced that she is tapping Oregon's stockpile of PPE, the personal protective equipment, to send to about 850 of the state's long-term care facilities. The Oregon National Guard started on Saturday distributing about 395,000 masks, gloves, and face shields. It's been four weeks since Governor Brown issued an executive order directing Oregonians to stay home to the maximum extent possible. Happy one-month anniversary, everybody. Now stay six feet away. Portland Public Schools sold $508 million in bonds last week, and we reported then it was unclear where the money is going. Well, here's where the money is going. Back in 2017, voters approved $790 million for work on Lincoln, Benson, and Madison High Schools, as well as Kellogg Middle School. The school sold $349 million in bonds that year. I know what you're thinking. That leaves $441 million, right? Okay, 
Stay with me. It turns out that PPS was able to sell $441 million in bonds for $508 million. Because the economic contraction and really low interest rates, 1.88% interest notes are pretty popular for people who don't want to lose their shirt in the stock market. So... The school district sort of cleared $67 million on the deal, at least on paper. Good thing, too, because the Benson renovations are $93 million over. For an excellent book on bond traders, read Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis. He's the guy who wrote Moneyball and Big Short. Those ended up as movies with Brad Pitt and Christian Bale. His new book is The Fifth Risk, Undoing Democracy. It's about the dismantling of public structures with the Trump administration and how it could lead to an inability to prevent or deal with national crises. Interesting. I wonder if Steve Buscemi will play Stephen Moore, Stephen Miller, or Steve Mnuchin in the movie. After rapidly running out of a pot of money, Marion County is throwing another pot of money to small businesses. On April 1st, no fooling, the board approved $200,000 in lottery funds for grants of up to $5,000 to local small businesses. Small businesses were those with five employees or fewer that might not have established relationships with banks or other lenders. The money could be used for rent, utilities, or supplemental income. Ruth's Chris, for example, would not be eligible for this money. Then at noon on April 9th, they started accepting applications for the new small business grant program. And by 12.01, the first come, first serve program had run out of dough. So the Marion County Board of Commissioners has made an additional $800,000 available for the grant program. The partnership received about 1,000 requests within the 24-hour period. 102 businesses qualified. The game is locked. They aren't taking any more applications. They will be able to serve some number of those remaining 900 requests. And the road to infection is paved with unprotected gatherings. More than 2,000 people flocked to Olympia, Washington this weekend to stand close together without masks and protest the state's stay-at-home order. Three state representatives spoke at the protest, one specifically threatening any government official who tries to keep him from fishing with an armed rebellion. Bill Marks on Twitter commented about another small and similar rally in another state. I mean, you have to admit it's hilarious that the people who have spent their entire lives stockpiling beans and ammo and publishing newsletters about preparing to shelter in place are the ones having meltdowns because they can't go to the Cheesecake Factory. A much smaller rally also popped up in Redmond, Oregon over the weekend. A few hundred people gathered to protest the forced closure of small-town businesses. And as we shared last week, there's another group that's planning to protest Governor Kate Brown in Salem. In related news, between 1.2 to 2 million people attended the March for Our Lives in 2018 to protest gun violence, and between 3.2 million and 5.6 million people attended the Women's March in 2017. From the Department of Free Willy and the Lorax, a white orca was spotted in Puget Sound waters. An orca as pale as a winter moon has been wowing onlookers all over Puget Sound. SeaWorld, I know what you're thinking, stay back. It's not an albino, as social media has dubbed it. The orca is actually gray rather than the typically deep, dashing orca black. The whale is a thriller and has been nicknamed Tluck, a Coast Salish word meaning moon. Tluck is only the second such whale known to have been seen in the Salish Sea. Those are the transboundary waters between the United States and Canada, including Puget Sound. And the Hillsborough police have gotten some extra attention of late. Videos have racked up over 110,000 views on the Hillsborough Police Department page alone. A post from Jennifer Garner put the video in front of many more children. The agency's social media pages are peppered with videos of police officers reading children's books to kids. From Clifford the Big Red Dog to If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, Officer Stephanie Davis gives a rendition of Goodnight Moon, which she reads aloud while also using sign language. And you guessed it, some from the legendary and often quoted Dr. Seuss. 
Today you are you that is truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you. I'm Jefferson Smith, and you're listening to The Local. Here's Emily Gilliland with what's next. Thanks, Jefferson. Now, a new COVID-19 infection screening website for Multnomah County was launched to prevent emergency room chaos during the crisis. Public health staff hope to use data from the tool to inform decisions about triage and testing. But the system has significant data gaps. And in an unusual process to get the tool set up, standard evaluation protocols for data privacy and security were overlooked. Here's the story from X-Ray's Kate K. This full story with more details can be found on the X-Ray blog. That's blog.xray.fm. It's not often that emergency services personnel launch a website, but it's what Portland Fire and Rescue decided made the most sense in this time of COVID-19 crisis. Lieutenant Rich Chapman, Portland Fire and Rescue's public information officer, wanted to avoid chaos in Portland area emergency rooms, especially if there's a surge of possible COVID-19 patients. I've worked triage many, many times, and I've seen what real bad looks like, and it's real, real bad. He and other emergency services staff rushed to get a website up. It screens people based on symptoms they say they're experiencing. Fever, sore throat, shortness of breath. The goal is to ensure only those the system deems high risk seek emergency medical care. This is not a .gov website or an Oregon State effort. Rather, C19Oregon.com is a version of an earlier COVID-19 screening site built by a health tech corporation called Vital. The earlier site, created for Atlanta's Emory University, revised a risk assessment system developed by medical researchers for the swine flu pandemic of 2009. The city is paying Vital $3,300 a month to operate the website. Municipalities across the globe are scrambling to get information that can help them understand and respond to the COVID-19 pandemic with speed and efficiency. Though primarily intended to screen out people at low risk of infection, the website effort here does serve as a source of new data. It collects information on age, zip code, symptoms, and pre-existing medical conditions. For now, it doesn't gather any identifiable information like names or phone numbers. When combined with other emergency and public health data, the information gathered through the site reveals clues about infection risk patterns and hotspots. It might be used to determine whether to target testing to specific neighborhoods. Dr. John Zhu is Multnomah County's EMS medical director. It helps us identify the neighborhoods so we can go out and do community intervention to decrease COVID-19 within that population. But for now, there are significant gaps in the data. In some areas of the county, no one has used the site. As of Friday, fewer than 1% of the county's population had visited it in total. The biggest spike in visits came on April 10th, around the same time a press announcement and an Oregonian story about it ran. Portland Fire and Rescue's principal management analyst, Robin Burrick, says it's one piece of a larger puzzle. It may not be a perfect picture across city as much as we would like it to be. But when we start adding in other pieces to it, I think it will begin to add some value to all of it and we'll hopefully get a fuller story of what's happening. A promotional campaign is in the works, which should raise awareness of C19Oregon.com. However, rushing the project under pandemic pressure meant standard protocol for technology procurement did not happen. In fact, 
the system was not selected by Portland Technology staff at all. Instead, it was chosen in part by a friend of Rich Chapman, the Portland Fire and Rescue Lieutenant. Here's Chapman. I reached out to a friend of mine who is just kind of my, my tech wizard friend who solves problems like this, like for fun. That tech whisperer friend is Benjamin Diggles, an entrepreneur whose firm uses blockchain technology to secure military data, like information from U.S. Air Force drones. And I was like, what's out there, Ben? What what can technology do that can help the situation out? Diggles has no official role in local government or public health experience. He told X-Ray he has not charged the city for his work on the project. Some local public health officials did assess the tool. However, C19Oregon.com is a corporate website that is not hosted on government servers, and it was not vetted through standard data security or privacy processes. Dan Douthit is the public information officer for the Portland Bureau of Emergency Management and Bureau of Emergency Communications. He said he was aware of the Emory University version of the screening site before Diggles introduced it to Chapman. But he said because the local version of the site would not collect personal information, a security and privacy assessment was not necessary. We, we didn't have an in-depth review on the potential for the, the data to be hacked, but the, again, the con- there wasn't much concern about the information being collected because it just it doesn't identify people. Because the city is in crisis mode, said Chapman, the project was run through emergency coordination center protocols. We're, we're actually using systems now that we employ only during the highest level emergencies. Without a pandemic uh, bearing down on us, we would certainly take a more methodical and planned out process. When we're looking at the possibility of becoming something like New York City, then we we don't go through those processes. We get the job done. But moving swiftly without engaging some of the city's key tech and data staff leaves lots of questions about how the website's data is secured and stored, who has access to it, and how it might be used or connected to other information in the future. For X-Ray.fm, I'm Kate Kay. Next up is an interview with Rima Gandor, candidate for Multnomah County Circuit Court Judge. Rima talks with me about falling in love with the legal system, the importance of community service, and the cases that changed her life. Multnomah County has a rare contested race for a judge position, filling the seat of Judge Gregory F. Silver, who is retiring. Four candidates are vying for the role. We have another candidate to introduce you to today. We have Rima Gandor, a candidate for Multnomah County Circuit Court Judge. Rima has over two decades of experience as a civil law attorney. Welcome to the show, Rima. Hi, Emily. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing this morning? Good. Uh, Hats off to all of you with the early morning um, radio show. (laughs) Thank you. Some some mornings it's a little tricky, (laughs) but it's better when the sun is out. And today looks like it's going to be another beautiful day. It sure does. Well, first off, tell us what tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're running for Multnomah County Circuit Court Judge. Yeah, so I'm um, I'm a proud Arab American. I'm an Im- immigrant. I immigrated to the U.S. when I was 18 uh, by myself and um, fell in love with uh, the legal system here. I grew up in Lebanon. I grew up in Iraq um, and a couple other uh, countries in the Middle East. Uh, I can 
tell you for sure, uh, Iraq under Saddam did not have a legal system like you would find here. I've had friends whose parents have been taken in the middle of the night not to show up again. Um, in Lebanon, uh, unfortunately, uh, bribery is huge. So when I came here and studied um, in undergrad, I fell in love with the political system. I fell in love with the legal system, decided to go to law school, um, and fell in love with the ideals of uh, what the legal system should be or means. Um, through practice, I slowly discovered that, you know, the ideals are there. We all need to uh, strive to get there. But um, in practice, the ideals are not there. Mm. So um, fast forward through working through several years, I uh, in the last few years, uh, there's been such an attack on the judicial system, and it is one of our pillars of our democracy. Personally, I have been terrified being a Muslim, being an Arab, being an immigrant, that a lot of our rights are being stripped away, um, talking to different communities of color. Um, that was a fear that was held by everybody. And I decided after the Muslim ban and doing volunteer work for that, that I would run for judge, put my privileges aside, which everybody, ha you know, if you're a lawyer, you have plenty. Uh, put them aside and continue my community work in a way that uh, ho hopefully helps uh, increase trust in our judicial system and present representation that is not currently uh, available in Multnomah County in Oregon and frankly almost uh, anywhere in the U.S. Mm. And you've said a little bit about this, but as you look at this race, as you think of the days and weeks and months ahead as we reemerge from this pandemic, What's at stake in this election? Well, at stake is, I mean, this is a local election. This is where your vote counts one-to-one -one in uh, where people are making decisions about your personal life every day. So most people uh, appearing before the court are not there because it's a good thing. Once in a while it is. You're getting married or you're adopting, right? It's a very stressful uh, situation. Having somebody that you can going to be fair to you, that they are going to put pressure that are going to be able to look at the whole picture before they decide something very important in their mm -hmm. own life is paramount for you to make a decision on who makes it to that bench. Mm -hmm. What makes a good district court judge? In my opinion, it is um, somebody who's always going to be prepared right, um, that will read and uh, look at the issues. But more important than that is somebody who the public can trust. Because if you don't have trust from the public that the person uh, making your des decisions about you is going to be fair, is going to understand you, is not going to judge you because you look different, you sound different, mm -hmm. you are different, right? They're not, that's not what is going to be a deciding factor or even a small factor in their decision, in their overall decision. Um, that Having that ability, having the ability to understand different cultures, having the ability to uh, look at the whole picture and not just um, one or two factors, I think that's what makes a good judge. But also going out in the community, being very active uh, in terms of not activism, mm -hmm. but being out there listening to people's concerns, because you do decisions, and um, if you don't go out and see how those decisions are actually affecting everyday people, 
-hmm. you don't know if these decisions are are actually good decisions. So it's important to be um, out and part of the community and um, the surrounding community. And what has that looked like for you? How have you made sure to stay connected to communities potentially most impacted by the judicial system? Yeah, this is, um, unfortunately for me, it's part of my community, my um, part of like my, um, the Arab and immigrant community, which I've been very involved with um, for a long time, um, DACA recipients, doing all that volunteer work, uh, getting involved with different organizations that uh, try to uh, assist uh, marginalized people. That's been sort of part of my community service since I, well, since before I moved to Oregon, but since I moved to Oregon in 2002 and have my kids here. So I'm already part of the community. I'm already active, and it would just ensure that I don't stop being part of them. I accept um, invitations. Obviously, your work changes. You can't be um, an advocate anymore, but you can be there. You can go to a naturalization um, ceremony, and instead of going as an attorney, you go with a judge just to introduce yourself, right? To be like, mm-hmm. this is this is one of your judges. I'm here. You know, you shouldn't be scared. Mm. As you think about your career and your life, what has best prepared you to transition from being an attorney to a judge? I think my passion for people. Um, I've always um, it's it's my passion for people, and it's my ability and desire to improve things around us. I've, I've always had that, I've never been an inactive person. I always look around me, whether it's at work or at home or in my community and go, what what can I do to improve things? And I will be bringing that to the bench because it's very important. There are internal procedures that have been happening, you know, going the same way for years without anybody questioning why they are that way. Mm-hmm. And, there needs to be an active lens to say, is this actually a fair procedure? Is this equitable? Is this inclusive? Mm. And then my passion for people. I mean, I think you have to care about people uh, because they are, whether it's a company or a person, there's people behind companies and there's people. So you have to be passionate about giving them equity, inclusivity, and justice. You just made reference to some of the the structure, the procedures that need attention. What are some examples of some of those that you want to tackle as judge? Um, I can give you an example of something I've already uh, tackled that, um, so I've been very involved with the legal community too. I just finished my presidency of the Multnomah Bar Association. And as part of that, uh, we had heard that there were some issues with physical access to the courthouse, not in Multnomah, mm-hmm. well, in Multnomah County, but more in other counties. So I started an ad hoc committee to talk to the court about it. And during that process, um, got my mom's uh, jury summons and I'm looking at it and there was nothing in there about um, accessibility to the mm-hmm. courthouse and how who you would contact if you need um, assistance with accessibility. And that was something that's been going on for years and years and years. And I was able to uh, point that out to the committee and we brainstormed on how we can make it better and how to improve the website uh, to make accessibility information more available. And now the jury summons have a box about how to contact um, Multnomah County. So this is an example of a procedure, I mean, an internal procedure that's been going on for, I don't know, 30 years, 40 years, many years 
but nobody was looking at it with a very active lens and being able to do that um, we were able to increase access to the courthouse wow that's that's uh, it's a bit shocking to imagine that 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 was uh, was an oversight or it wasn't you know I assume it wasn't an intentional oversight but uh, glad to I, I don't think it was an intentional oversight I think when it was done um, it just sometimes you just have to look around you and go okay this is going on how do I make it better yeah right and what was the how process we, what was the process like to get that fixed was it an easy what was fix? The, what was the process like to get that fixed? Was it a complicated process? Did it take a lot of time? No, actually, it was not. It was the next time they ran out of, uh, uh, they had to print new jury summons to <laughs> wow. add that box and to just update the website. And again, it's not, it was not an intentional thing. It's just, there are so many little things around and you need people looking at them to improve them, mm. right? Yeah. Fascinating. So as you think about your role as judge and the the needs that you've seen firsthand or know of in this community, what areas are a priority for you as a judge? What areas of civic life do you think you'll be addressing as judge that you want to want to talk about? So, so one of the saddest thing I think we see in the in the courthouse and the legal system is really access access mm-hmm. to attorneys and access to services. Now, as a judge, you can you don't write the laws, right? But you can be on task force that uh, talks to legislatures about how the laws they've written are affecting um, this, uh, marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. Um, you, get a, you get a lot of cases that involve houseless people and uh, drug, drug addictions. And we have a pretty good program in Multnomah County, but again, there's always need for improvement and trying to work with the legislatures to try to figure out uh, more access to services because there is when somebody's coming in front of you because they're houseless and that's the crime um, or that's why the crime is committed whatever Mm -hmm. the crime is like uh, urinating in public right that's not because they are they want to do that there's not enough facilities there's not enough Mm -hmm. uh, help for them to be able to not urinate in public right Mm -hmm. so uh, working on those are um, paramount for me and making sure that everybody is respected and treated like they deserve to be as Mm -hmm. humans they are so we're going to have lots of folks to vote for in this primary this judge election is one of them if someone has never voted for a judge before how would you give them advice on evaluating the candidates that they see on the ballot? Yeah, I think um, one of the, I mean, obviously go and check everything they can, but but see who's done work or not recently, not because it's their job. Who has gone beyond uh, to help communities? Who has gone, um, who's been doing it longest? Who's been doing it uh, more actively? I think that is important because um, you want to look at the attorney who's running for judge's entire um, career and not just recent activities. Um, so I think that's very important because it will tell you who they are. Uh, I think it's important, again, to look beyond just what is their job, but what have they done beyond their job? Because we all have different jobs and we may do it, but. What is their volunteering uh, background? What have they done for uh, different communities that is not just because that's their uh, job to do? Mm. As you thought about running for judge, of course, you had, a, I'm sure, a campaign plan laid out. 
having a global pandemic uh, now interrupts some of those plans. How how has your campaign changed in the last month or so due to COVID-19? Yeah, uh, I mean, we're all home, right? So mm-hmm. all of the canvassing events with different communities, uh, like we just ha- um, were supposed to be going uh, this weekend to the Lao New Year's, uh, all of those have been canceled. So now it's moved online as best as we can um you know and we are reassessing what can you know because all the normal campaigning activities are gone but you know again i consider ourselves so fortunate for um living where we are in for me personally i've I've lived through wars i've lived in bunkers during you know shelters during bombing so this is in a way, um, not as painful as that, um, but it has affected all of our lives and definitely the campaign. And so what we've been doing a lot of virtual um, Zoom parties, <laughs> lots of lots of Zoom. Yes, that's the too much Zoom, <laughs> too much Zoom. <laughs> it's now the new the new way to to communicate. It's so fascinating to see how we've evolved so quickly. What does an endorsement process look like for a judge position? Yeah, it's um. It's a it's an interesting one, right? Because sometimes you get the endorsements from people you already know mm-hmm. or that are friends, and then you get endorsements. Um, you know, you reach out to people that don't know you and explain to them and show them who you are and get the endorsements as that way. I'm very, very, very proud of my union endorsements. Um, I'm also proud I have three past the presiding judges from Multnomah County who have endorsed me. And uh, some of um, the elected officials uh, that I'm very uh, happy with their endorsements. You can check them out on my website, uh, which is Rima for Judge. Where do you find examples of hope that really sustain your vision for equity through the judicial system? Oh, um, <laughs> that's a hard one. Um, I think when you see somebody like um, uh, are we, at the Supreme Court level actually make a difference. When you see the lawyer volunteers that came out during the Muslim ban, um, we started a uh, go to the Portland airport and meet people, and so many people volunteered, not just in Oregon or Portland, all over the U.S. Seeing something like that really sustains me um, because mm-hmm. I think there are so many people wanting to improve our systems um, that I hope one day that will happen. Mm. I love that. Rima, where can folks find out more information about you and how they can support your campaign? Yes, um, my website, which is uh, rimaforjudge.com for F-O-R, not the letter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can also go on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, same uh, handle, rima4judge.com. Uh, but, I mean, rima4judge. But the website has more information about how to support the campaign and more substantive information about me. Excellent. Rima, thank you so much for waking up early or at least talking to us so early this morning. Really appreciate your public service and jumping in into the race. and wish you best of luck. Thank you so much, Emily. Thanks, Rima. Bye-bye. Again, that's Rima Gendor, candidate for Multnomah County Circuit Judge. I appreciate her joining us this morning.
Those are the four candidates for Multnomah County Circuit Judge. We have interviewed all four of them this week, and we'll be posting these interviews up on our xraypod.com website and on other podcast platforms. I want to make sure you get as many long-form interviews as you can. We're just a few weeks from the May-Oregon primary, which is happening on May 19th. In the next week or so, those voter pamphlets will start hitting mailboxes, and then the beginning of May, we'll see those ballots. We've got a lot of a lot of elections to think about, and we are doing our best to get as many voices to you as possible so you can be an informed voter. Again, that was Rima Gandor, candidate for Multnomah County Circuit Judge. You can find out more at Rima, which is R-I-M-A, for F-O-R, judge.com. Thanks to Kate and to Rima, and thanks to you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Again, we'd love your support at X-Ray. Become a member at $15 a month or whatever you can do. You get a cool new shirt or a record tote. When you become a member, you can go to xray.fm slash donate. We can be together while we are apart. If you have story ideas, send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. Talk to you tomorrow. We'll be back with a Sunrise Movement PDX on the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Today is gone. Today was fun. Tomorrow will be another one. In the meantime, stay home, stay connected, and thank you, democracy. And as the story goes, the barbarians are heading towards Rome, heading towards the city. And if they can just cut down the bridge, there's a chance for the city to be saved. But it turns out the barbarians are upon them, and there is no time. And it looks like the city is lost. But then, out spake brave Horatius, the captain of the gate. To everyone upon this earth, death cometh soon or late. And how can one die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers in the temples of his gods? In yon straight path a thousand may well be stopped by three. Now who will stand on either hand and keep this bridge with me? I'm going to do it again. One of my favorite, one of my favorite portions of any poem. Every time we feel we're too small, we can't do enough. I think about this poem, which is about barbarian hordes heading to the city. It's about barbarian hordes heading to Rome. And separating the hordes from the city is a bridge. And if they could hew down the bridge, they would be saved. Ah, but the hordes are too close, and it looks like the city is lost. But then out spake brave Horatius, the captain of the gate. To everyone upon this earth, death cometh soon or late. And how can one die better than by facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods? In yon straight path a thousand may well be stopped by three. Now who will stand on either hand and keep this bridge with me?